Hello and welcome to the Access of Space Defense and Security podcast. I'm Omkar Nikam, your host for this episode. In this podcast, we explore the latest developments and trends in the fields of space exploration, defense technology, and national security. Each episode features insightful interviews with experts and industry leaders who share their perspectives on a wide range of topics, including the latest advances in satellite technology, space exploration missions, military defense strategies, cybersecurity, and more. Whether you are a space enthusiast, a military professional, or someone interested in the latest innovation in technology and security, this podcast has something for you. Join us as we delve into the cutting-edge research breakthroughs that are shaping the future of space defense and security. Stay tuned. Episode 38 is a follow-up of episode 37. So I kindly request you to first hop on to episode thirty-seven before proceeding with episode thirty-eight. Thank you and enjoy the conversation in this episode. I mean, coming uh, to the question of the actual conflicts that are going on at the moment. So the ongoing conflicts like Russia-Ukraine as well, uh, including Israel-Palestine too, which recently happened. Uh, what are your thoughts on these issues from the lens of intelligence? from the lens of intelligence on the Gaza issue and what was the other one? Uh Russia Ukraine as well. Oh, uh, you Russia Ukraine, yeah. So I mean, there were some certain let's start with Ukraine, right? Um the the intelligence community analysts, and you have to take off your hat to them really got Russia's intent right. I mean, they they were almost ahead of it uh more so than their foreign minister, right? who apparently was not in the know about their attempt to invade uh Ukraine. Yes. Uh what was I think wrong and it was across the board not just any particular agency but multi countries agency was how um Russia would do. I mean their capabilities were way overblown. And and that's just proofs in the pudding. You look at right before they invaded um almost all analysts that i know in the government out of the government on tv were predicting days if not weeks for kiev to fall and now we're you know how many how long away and now we're we're critiquing the ukrainian counteroffensive right so that was obviously wrong uh and and so that was a good and a bad Another good is that uh, the special operations forces uh, you know have been working with the Ukrainians since 2014 it's been wildly okay. widely reported in the media and i think the initial capability to res- resist the russian invasion was really those special operations forces that we worked with so closely and their capabilities had become much more aligned with the way the west fights um which is more effective uh in in how to fight a modern warfare uh uh conflict and i think that is a big plus that we've seen play benefits all the way till today but certainly up front with small specialized units with specialized equipment in that case mostly anti-armor and anti-air manned portable uh weapon systems that really gave the russian fits when they thought they would just be rolling into kiev in a matter of days so i think that that is a success that the us intelligence and special operations community had is the the training of the ukrainian forces which then expanded to training conventional forces but started with 
with those special operations units and intelligence units. Okay. And, uh, you know, I mean, we were speaking about this topic as well. Uh, I would like to shed a little bit light on the, you know, uh, cyber side as well in the conversation. Uh, because we have seen in the Russia-Ukraine side, especially, that there was a cyber outrage that was, you know, going on. So can you, uh, you know, extend a little bit on the role of cyber warfare in the modern intelligence operations? Yes. So I think when it first started, it was viewed as a very specialized and in some ways isolated form of espionage, which doesn't just include collecting intelligence, right? It also includes doing covert operations and not just the paramilitary, but there's all sorts of covert operations. There's influence operations and there's covert cyber operations. Uh, but now it is completely integrated into all operations. Like there is, there is essentially very little operations that happen that doesn't have a cyber component because of the modern world we live in. So just about every type of operations we have, there is or should be a cyber component. Now, some of that can be directed covertly to disrupt um, military logistics, to disrupt communications, especially for command and control, uh, to yes. convince um, people that something's happening that's not. And it is, it is essential to getting inside their, their communications network um, to either uh, block it or to gather information. Uh, those are all incredibly important uh, things that always existed in some form or fashion in, in warfare. But now, because we're all cyber um, uh, established, it's become absolutely critical to everything we're doing when it comes to okay. um, it comes to espionage and all out warfare. OK. And, uh, you know, uh... This, this question is mainly from, I would say, you know, strategy perspective, uh, because I believe the kind of world we live in, the threats that we are facing are, you know, more of an hybrid threats. So how do intelligence agencies and special operations unit adapt to emerging threats and, you know, the changing global dynamics? Because I believe even the hybrid warfare has a lot of geopolitical motives these days. Yes, I think... You know, this is in military terms, you know, looking at the next ridge line. So, and what they mean by that yeah. is, you know, the ridge line you're fighting on, but if, if you want to be successful for the future fight, you got to start looking at it now. And that's easier said than done. And I know that's a cliche, but that has to be done. You can't just fight, you know, and there's also the other cliche that we're always fighting the last war. Well, we have to look at what the future war is going to be like and prepare for it. Um, and that's going to be, in my opinion, one, it's going to be training together. And yes, we have, we, one of the things we do at Lobo is training. Uh, but we need to do that, whether it's here or anywhere else. We need to train together for how we're going to fight. And we're going to fight as an interagency uh, element, in which takes not only you know direct kinetic special operations to account, but also broader cyber operations, diplomatic efforts, influence and propaganda, all of that matters in the actual fight. The campaign plan, if you will, involves all of that, not just one component. And quite frankly, one component isn't more important than the other. So we need to start training in, in, in basically working as a task force, if you will, which is we have a task, 
we need to have all these component presence to be able to be the most effective at it. If we go back to our own silos, we're not doing that. We're not preparing for the next war. Uh, that's one component. So it's integration and interagency cooperation. The other component is both getting ahead on technology. You know, that is something the U.S. has always been a part of our national strategy is what's called offsets. And what it means is we try to get leaps ahead of our adversaries on technology, whether it is, you know, from the yes. nuclear or the first offset. Now, and then it was global positioning satellites, which gave us precision munitions. And the next offset, uh, many people consider is going to be both uh, an artificial intelligence based combined with robotics, um, which is very uh, interesting. It could completely change the face of, of future warfare, but there's also some extremely troubling consequences of that. You know, you can go, you can run through the list of sci-fi movies you've seen to know what those are. Um, but those are, we have to be, we have to work as, as we fight, we have to be the most sophisticated, but the cautionary tale is also be able to fight without the technology, right? Um, if I think, I would hope that they're still using maps and compasses at Ranger School uh, and other schools so that in the event that our GPS uh, system is uh, essentially defeated, that we still know how to navigate, for example. That's just one example. So we have to be the most advanced on technology, but we also be, have to be capable of functioning without it. And then the, the last part I would say is we need to start rebuilding, and I think it's happening, our alliances, because the United States fights as a coalition. My old uh, boss, Secretary Mattis, said it multiple times um, when he was, you know, obviously a Marine. He, he fought many wars, and they were all fought with coalitions. So the United States, yes. uh, it's kind of in line with the interagency component, but I would say this on the, on the global scale, we need to have very strong alliances and partnerships with countries around the world that are compatible with us, that we can train in large exercises together, because that is how we're going to fight the war itself. And the more we're capable of doing that, the better when it comes to, uh, you know, the wars that we're fighting, and the wars that we may fight. And quite frankly, you know, the old adage, it's uh, both uh, uh, a Roman and I think Sun Tzu as well, but, you know, uh, you know, in peace, prepare for war, right? And yes. uh, the best way to avoid war is to prepare for it. There's all sorts of uh, quotes to that line because it makes sense and we need to do it now uh, because that's yes. how you avoid wars in the future is to be, to be so strong that uh, no other entity, country, thinks it's in their interest to take you on. Yes. I believe the intelligence sharing capabilities are very important, uh, especially among allies, uh, because uh, I believe that's that's how you grow as, you know, a globally uh, secure power. Uh, it's not only about, you know, whether your country is developed or not, but I think when you have uh, allies, you have an alliances as well. Uh, we are seeing a similar kind of thing, I think, happening uh, in the Indo-Pacific uh, with the grouping of Quad, where United States, India, Australia, and Japan have come yeah. together. They are sharing similar perspectives, uh, but I'm not sure even the, whether the 
intelligent sharing will happen or not because the quad's complete motive is to counter you know the chinese presence in the indo-pacific uh, and i believe yes. yeah i think uh, it's going to need more than just you know sharing the defense capabilities it's going to need intelligent sharing capabilities and i hope the uh, group discussions actually reach that point where these four nations you know start sharing intelligence within themselves too I agree. And that's a really good example of what I'm talking about, because it is a group of like-minded countries that are partners, allies, uh, that come together, and not just for military. It, it is important, obviously, that the militaries are compatible and do exercises so they can function together. Yes. But diplomatically, uh, economically, it is everything, right? And it's intelligence sharing, which is, a port, of course, important to all the other things. So Intelligence share is important for economic uh, uh, issues, for diplomatic issues, and for military issues. So that is part of what I'm talking about, building these strong coalitions, not taking them for granted, uh, working to make sure that they are serviced and that it, they're functional, uh, because we never know. You know, look at, I mean, before Russia invaded NATO, there was a lot of people, I think, who were uh, mis mis mistakenly saying this, that it, that it was over. You know, there's there no need for NATO. The, the Cold War was over, and the, that's why it was set up and what were the purpose. And now, bam, Russia invades uh, Ukraine, and now NATO expanded, right, uh, with yes. uh, Finland and Sweden, who didn't join yes. during the entirety of the Cold War, but now joined. In, uh, and now all the countries are, at least some of them, are actually doing it. And everyone is talking about increasing their military spending so that they can have a better uh, contribution to the to the military alliance. So I think that's an example of why we need those alliances and why those alliances uh, need to be serviced and need to be improved and need to be expanded. So it's not, yes. it's not, uh, it doesn't just rest on the laurels of the past, but looks toward the futures and what we need to be prepared to, uh, to face together. Yes. And, you know, uh, just to kind of, you know, add a little more layer from the public perspective, because we have been speaking about uh, from the internal uh, issues, I would say, of the government affairs and the intelligence agencies. So, you know, how do the, I mean, from the perspective of popular culture and media on the public positions of uh, special operations, how do these things impact, uh, you know, the espionage issues or even the special operations? So how does what impact the special operation? Uh, the public perception, uh, you know, from the perspective of media and popular culture. Oh, so like how does how does the public perception impact intelligence and special operations? Is that what you mean? Yeah, yeah. I mean, the impact of uh, all these issues on, uh, I would say, the way the media portrays it. So how, how do well, these things go ahead? Yeah. Yeah, so I mean, as you would expect, a lot of how it's portrayed in the media or in in movies, in television, for example, yes. is not really accurate, right? So it's yes, yes. it's over dramatic. <laughs> it's it's uh, cliffhangers. I mean, that's that's what people watch, and they've always watched those. You know, going back to ancient Greece, they yes. wanted drama, right? Um, and <laughs> yes. so that you could expect that, but I do think. Um, Sometimes it's portrayed as too um, in a bad light, especially intelligence, in that, you know, it's always somebody out there chasing somebody else that uh, done them wrong and, and, 
it, you know, it, I would say that intelligence is, you know, it is, it is interesting and it certainly is a lot of the things that's portrayed in the movie. It's just not happening in a 24 hour period. Right. Um, yes. <laughs> but it is, it's, it's, it's a great job. I wouldn't change, you know, if anybody's out there thinking of going, I mean, I wouldn't change anything that was, yes. uh, I think one of the most fulfilling jobs I could have ever done. And I wouldn't, I would recommend it to anybody that had that kind of mindset uh, and capabilities to go into it. Uh, but it isn't, it isn't what it is portrayed in the sense that, uh, especially the agency, it has oversight committees in the House and the Senate. So in Congress, views of what we do. And um, if we're doing something that's out of line, uh, it, it gets noticed and it gets defunded, uh, quite frankly. That's one thing I'd point out when it comes to especially covert operations, uh, is there is a, a significant oversight to the agency doesn't choose to do these things. It's one of the kind of things that's kind of baffled me is the president is signs what's called presidential findings. It tells the agency what to do. It's, it's just like yes. an order to the military. Uh, it gives it some parameters. It gives what it can and can't do is left and right limits, if you will. And then the agency carries it out to the best of its ability. But oftentimes uh, it's then turned around as if the agency had decided to do this on its own. And perhaps back in the early stages of the agency's existence, that was the case. It's not the case now. The agency carries out operations just like the military does at a direction of a politically elected leader, in our case, the president of the United States. So it is important uh, that that's known. It's not a rogue elephant as it was used to, used to be called. It's very much yes. not only directed by the commander in chief, uh, but also reviewed by the legislative branch, so the executive and the legislative branch. And I think that's, and obviously, if any of those things are unconstitutional, it would be reviewed, uh, I guess, theoretically by the Supreme Court and the judicial branch. So I don't know if this is really exactly on point of your question, but I think it's important yes. to point out that yes. oftentimes I hear this all around the world is agencies like running its own show. And maybe sometimes that works yeah. well for the agency, for people to believe that. But ultimately, the, the, the agency is capable of it as it is, is an arm of the national security apparatus of the U.S. government. Yes. It answers to the chain of command uh, that ends with an elected uh, president. And it also answers questions and to its own funding uh, from other elected representatives who are signed to the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence and the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence. So it is very yes. much uh, not a rogue element. Yes. And I mean, we are reaching at the end of the podcast now. Uh, so I believe uh, this question also, you know, relates to uh, somewhat uh, to the public domain. Uh, what is the future of intelligence agencies and special operations in an increasingly interconnected and digital world? Uh, primarily because uh, I believe the digital world, uh, especially, you know, through the social media platforms, communication, uh, evolution in the communication technology, there's a lot of uh, disinformation, you know, that is going on at the moment. So uh, what what are your thoughts on this? So I have a lot of thoughts on it, but I'll try to make it as short as possible. <laughs> I think, okay. I, I think yeah. that, the uh, military special operations and the intelligence community writ large, not just micro, is the ones yes. that need to be continuously 
out there engaging and essentially the war doesn't end. And I don't mean like a hot war, but I mean, that is their primary responsibility is to get ahead of what's coming next. Uh, the conventional forces need to prepare, they need to equip, they need to do everything and train, uh, but they are essentially there for wars. Uh, and when a war starts, they're the primary. You know, it's, yes. it's Army and Marine divisions and uh, it's the U.S. Navy and the U.S. Air Force that wins wars. Special operations and intelligence does not. We can prepare for it. We can win parts of it, you know, our version of battles, but we don't win the wars. We are supportive when it comes to the wars. But before that, we need to do everything to prepare uh, and try to keep us out of wars, right? That's the other thing we do is if there's something we can do to keep the U.S. out of a conventional war, we need to do it. So, and that goes to my points that I've been driving home. It's continuously working together, not separating because, you know, we've decided to end the global war on terror. It is, it is getting advance of the technologies that are coming and integrating it into our operations. And then, of course, it is to keep those relationships overseas. We do it in a big way, as you mentioned, the quad, but you can also do yes. that in uh, the relationships you have with other special operations forces and intelligence services. That needs to be done as well so that we're prepared and we see it coming and that if necessary, we can help keep us out of it as a collective intelligence and special operations community. And if we, we, that's unsuccessful, which is usually mostly diplomatic effort, then we're ready to fold in and, and be the supporting effort to the large scale war that we all hope doesn't happen. That's what I think the yes. role of the future of special operations is integration, uh, technological, uh, superiority and yes. alliances. Okay. And, uh, you know, I mean, this last question uh, is for students, you know, so I'm zooming out from the conversation of the topic that we have been, you know, discussing. Uh, generally, because, you know, there is a lot of student audience, even the researchers, PhD students as well, uh, who listen to this podcast. Uh, so generally, I make sure that, you know, the final question uh, is for the students because I believe every expert who comes on my podcast has, you know, has some or the other anecdotes to offer to the academicians, uh, especially, you know, the student uh, audience who are actually pursuing PhD or pursuing their master's in defense security and all. So, yeah, so this question is for them. Uh, what message would you like to share with the students, the researchers and other stakeholders participating and engaging in defense, security, peace and conflict research studies? So uh, what, what advice would I have for them going forward on their careers? Is that, is that, uh, that the gist of the question? Yes, yes. So uh, one, I think it's incredibly important um, to learn history. You know, yes. uh, it is, it is, I mean, there's, I could give you all the cliches, but I'm sure the students all know it. But you have to know where we were to know where we could be going. And in in being an expert on uh, you know any particular element of defense, national security, intelligence, etc., is important. But you should all consider yourself at least amateur historians, because it puts it in context of where we need to be going. So that would be the first part. The second part yes. is you have to be. Um, 
and this is something that was really enforced in the intelligence community, but as apolitical as possible. And what I mean by that is you have to view everything for what it is when it comes to yes. impacting our national security and not necessarily what it, its impacts on the political system, especially um, your particular one. Uh, there used to be a time when politics, they said, stops at the water's edge. Uh, and now it just infuses everything. And sometimes it's more about, and, and I'm an, a nonpartisan person, as you might be picking up, but sometimes it's more about what's beneficial to the party and not necessarily what's beneficial to the country, regardless of who's, you know, which party is in, in charge. I think it is incumbent on everybody that's going into the defense uh, whether it's in the military itself, in the defense industry, in the intelligence industry, to stay as, away from the politics and to focus on uh, what is best for the country. Because if it doesn't stay consistent, uh, it essentially is not very effective. So if we come up with a strategy that just simply shifts every four years uh, based on you know the new guy not liking what the old guy did, uh, that's no way to that's no way to actually have a strategy. It just won't work. So mm -hmm. to, to the extent that they can uh, enforce that in their, in their self and their colleagues to stay out of that, uh, I would suggest that that is the way they look at their job is requiring staying out of politics uh, in, 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 if they're in the national security uh, field. And the other one is to realize that your job, and this is what I say to everybody, is not just to do what's, in front of you and do the best of your abilities, but it's also to, to be the mentor for the next generation. And if you don't yes. do that, even if you're a great operator, if you did phenomenal things, but you never bothered to mentor the next generation or prepare them, then you miss the boat. You just flat out miss the boat. And I know you're talking a lot of people that yes. might be just starting their careers and they're saying, why are you telling me about being a mentor? Well, I'm telling you now because that's the way you should view it. Whenever you leave a job, you should set the person that takes over up for success. Like you should want them to take whatever you did and improve it, right? Yes. It, is, it's, it is not about the individual. Uh, it is about the team. And uh, ultimately your job is to make the next generation better than you, uh, better than your generation, yes. including yourself. So I would, I would say those are the things that I would highlight to anybody getting into this field uh, in addition to the fact that I think you will feel more so than many other people that don't, that you, that you have contributed, uh, to your society in a way that a lot of others uh, don't, don't get the opportunity to do. Yes. Yeah. Excellent. I think, uh, I hope the students really take away this key aspects from, uh, the last question that I mentioned, uh, and yeah. Mick, I think uh, we have we are you know reaching the end of the podcast now, uh, so I'd like to thank you very much again, uh, you know, for providing some crucial insights, and I would like to also mention that uh, you are you know kind of an opening guest for I would say the series of the special operations episode because uh, as I mentioned in the beginning of the podcast, uh, there have been no you know special operations episode specifically you know focused on this topic. There have been some episodes on you know hybrid warfare and. I would say narrative strategies and espionage, but not dedicated to this uh, special topic. And I think uh, a lot of things came up in our conversation. So I really hope in the future, 
uh, we might record few more episodes with you whenever you have time of course uh, so yeah thank you very much again and I, i really hope to have you again on the podcast thank you omkar great questions and i look forward to coming back just let me know yes thank you for listening to this episode if you find our podcast insightful then please like share and subscribe see you in the next episode thank you